In the past two years, multiple public and private institutions nationwide have committed themselves more forcefully than in the past to redress historic intertwined economic and racial inequities in U.S. society. The Washington metropolitan region is no exception. Area governments, businesses, and nonprofits have responded, like others, to economic differences highlighted by the COVID pandemic and to the national reckoning on race triggered by the murder of George Floyd. Here's Jeff McKay, who as chair of the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors, holds the highest elected official position in what is the largest jurisdiction in both the DC metro region and the Commonwealth of Virginia. One of the challenges we have in Fairfax is everyone knows us to be a very wealthy, uh, progressive community, but a lot of times we forget uh, that there are parts of the county that feel like, and in some ways literally have been, uh, in my opinion, left behind and left out of the equation. Welcome to Think Regionally, a monthly podcast sponsored by the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments, or COG. I'm your host, Robert McCartney. This is the second of two episodes on equity in action. Last month's episode looked at paths to overcoming inequity in the health sector. Today, we're looking at economic development. We're talking about how area governments and other institutions are seeking to lift up neighborhoods that have suffered from chronic poverty, low life expectancy at education levels, and often poor transportation connections and job opportunities. In addition to Chairman McKay, I'll be talking with senior representatives from private business and philanthropy. We'll hear about major investments in disadvantaged neighborhoods and tools to boost equity through philanthropic efforts related to home ownership, government-funded baby bonds, and much more. We'll start by hearing more from McKay, who was raised along the Route 1 corridor, a less advantaged eastern section of Fairfax County, which he now leads. For me, this is uh, personal. Um, and I think what we see in, in some areas of the county is we see uh, growth patterns in the past that have been done that, you know, pretty, pretty much isolate what we call, you know, islands of disadvantage, where you have pockets of significant poverty uh, without great access to jobs and opportunity, zoning, things that have been put in place over time that perpetuate what I would consider to be these islands of disadvantage. So what are the best strategies uh, that you're finding to lift those communities economically? We'll use Route 1 as an example first, uh, because that you know is an area that, that we've invested the most time in in this space. Um, and in that particular case, a strategy is to bring state-of-the-art infrastructure. So we have uh, good infrastructure in place. What we don't have um, is really good mass transit. And, you know, mass transit, of course, is a game changer when you think about land use planning and redevelopment. And so our comprehensive plan calls for bus rapid transit. It's a $1 billion infrastructure investment that is a game changer uh, for the Route 1 corridor that will finally help people in that area believe and see firsthand that the county is willing to spend money in parts of the county that people feel like have been left behind. The other strategy is we take a look at the root causes that hold areas back. Uh, in, in areas like Route 1, it's a lack of employment opportunities, um, a lack of workforce development opportunities. And so we, we've put a lot of money and effort into putting a workforce innovation center uh, right in Hybla Valley. 
Uh, we have the old Mount Vernon High School that we're going to repurpose for job training academy opportunities. Uh, we have a dual enrollment uh, program at Mount Vernon High School to help kids get college credits while they're in high school so that we're producing a workforce on the highway that can take advantage of um, higher quality jobs and higher incomes. Fairfax has been formally committed to promoting equity since 2016 in an initiative called One Fairfax. Let's turn to the uh, One Fairfax program. So, so what are some examples of how the commitments to consider equity have affected or may affect policy decisions? Um, they've been profound. I look at what we did during COVID as exhibit A. We put in place a plan to do equity clinics, to go into communities, to vaccinate people in their communities, to have spokespeople in the community that can be trusted, uh, not just government. I mean, we had a, a huge equity-focused COVID response. One micro example, just so people know the, you know, the extremes that, that we're dealing with here and why this is important in every decision, domestic violence uh, in the county happens everywhere. It's not income-driven. Yet, we had one domestic violence shelter in the county a few years ago in the western part of the county, which meant if you were a victim of domestic violence in the Route 1 corridor, Springfield, Mount Vernon, you were pretty much out of luck. You would have to upend your whole life to go to a DV shelter in the western part of the county. We had been fighting for that, me and the Mount Vernon District Supervisors, for many, many years to get a DV shelter in the Route 1 corridor. And it's only when we overlaid our one Fairfax lens and we looked to our other eight colleagues and said, here's what the data shows. How can we not have a DV shelter in this part of the county? McKay noted that overcoming inequity in the region would go a long way to relieve many of what he called the area's biggest headaches. It is a regional headache that we are so far behind in affordable housing. It is a regional headache that we have climate issues that need to be addressed through better land use plans. It is a regional headache that we have areas that are economically depressed that are located in places where that should never be the case. And it is a regional headache that we all have antiquated zoning issues that have to be broken down and dismantled uh, so that we look at a new way of developing complete communities in the future where you have you know, higher quality jobs, but you also have um, higher density housing, walkability, uh, retail opportunities that come with those. Now let's turn to the private sector's role in advancing equity. I spoke with Daniel Okonkwo of J.P. Morgan Chase. He is the East Region Executive for Global Philanthropy for the banking giant. J.P. Morgan Chase has pledged to commit $30 billion over five years for a variety of racial equity initiatives, especially for mortgages and small business loans in black and brown communities. Some of that money will be part of a $4.7 billion equity project in the Washington region, backed by J.P. Morgan Chase and a number of other large area employers grouped in the Greater Washington Partnership. I asked Okonkwo why the business community should make it a priority to promote economic and racial equity. We have to listen to the communities in which we're working, um, and we have to be invested in the success of, of those communities. And, and I think in order to do that, recognizing the, the different levels of investment, whether it be public or private resources historically in, in this region, 
have produced some inequities. And so for us to be successful as a business, and I think for businesses to be successful, we have to kind of even the playing field. So some of these initiatives obviously are, are costing some resources of the bank and probably, I would say definitely not necessarily in the areas where you're going to reap the biggest return. So how do you justify that commitment of resources given the bank's obligation you know, to maximize return for shareholders? You know, when we look at what we want to be doing in this community, the more businesses that are viable, the more potential business customers we have. If, we're, if we have a more inclusive economy, that can also result in more customers. So I think what we, we're taking is, is a long view that as the region becomes more prosperous, as we bridge this racial wealth divide, that there, there is, will be a return on investment. So what kind of initiatives does J.P. Morgan Chase have that work toward this effort? Mm -hmm. So on the business side, we've done things such as open up community branches. So these are our branches in the area that have a space for the community to gather. Banks typically open nine to five when they close at five, that, that's it. What we've done is opened up our space to be open later to allow for nonprofits to gather for us to run programming out of those locations. They're doing things like financial health programming. So holding classes and seminars on financial health on home buying, disseminating information and, and helping to raise the, the financial literacy of, of communities. We also have a Chase Small Business Mentorship Program where we have individual consultants who will go out and mentor small businesses. One of the other areas that, that we've done this is in the supplier diversity space. How can we make sure that the folks that are supplying those big institutions include black and brown owned and, and diverse uh, owned businesses. That program now has a line item in the DC budget. So what are, let's talk about the, the obstacles to this effort. I mean, it's a laudable effort. Tag is committed to it. I'm committed to it. So what are the main challenges that businesses face as they work to in, to advance uh, equity and overcome the racial wealth gap? Is it, is it a question of resources? Is it a question of policy? Is it a question of political will? What, what are the obstacles? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a stew of, of all of those. I would say, first off, I think we have to recognize that as we try and bridge the racial wealth divide, we're not talking about um, combating something that was built up over the last five years. We are talking, we are talking about like 500 years. <laughs> we, exactly. We're, we're talking about, about big systems and systems that are, are intertwined with each other, um, systems that are self-reinforcing. And so systems change is not quick work. It's not easy work. It takes political will. It takes capital. It takes policies that reflect both of those things. <laughs> and I think that's what we're trying to do in this region is not just pump philanthropic dollars into communities. There is a place for that. But we also have to change employer behavior, both on the supplier diversity side, on how we uh, train and upskill and educate the workforce. Some philanthropic institutions and others in the nonprofit sector have been ahead of the curve in pressing for action to overcome structural inequities 
related to income and race. I spoke to Tonya Wellens, Chief Executive Officer of the Greater Washington Community Foundation. It is the area's largest funder, distributing about $70 million in grants every year to a broad range of nonprofits. Last year, the foundation formally adopted a strategy committing itself to focus on promoting economic and racial equity. So I think it's important that uh, the nonprofit sector focus on uh, increasing economic mobility and closing the racial wealth gap um, because it's probably one of the most persistent um, issues that contribute to all of the other things that the nonprofit sector is looking to solve for. And I think so much of our focus has been on sort of the crisis response. We're, we're really, really good at responding to these emergency needs um, sometimes to the detriment of really having a, a, a future, a, a focus on the broader horizon and the future. Wellens described two broad policy changes that nonprofits could support to lift historically disadvantaged communities. The first was through changes to make it easier and more affordable to achieve home ownership. The other was raising the income cutoff levels for public benefits, that is, to allow recipients to earn more money without losing housing or child care assistance. So I would include home ownership as one of those issue areas or opportunity areas, including some policies around home ownership. I would look at, from a policy perspective, I would look at the benefits cliffs. You know, one of the things that is keeping a lot of our uh, lower income families from, you know, from moving from stability to mobility is that the moment that they get, you know, whether it's a raise or, um, or something that puts them over the income qualification line for certain public benefits, they lose the benefit. And uh, what many of us would argue is that they need more time sometimes um, when it comes to having access to a public benefit, plus the ability to amass some resources so that they could you know, pay down debt or accumulate enough to buy a car or to invest in a home. Um, but one typically shuts down once you reach a certain level and it's kind of, it's counterproductive and it keeps poor uh, families and low-income families in a, in a, in a perpetual cycle um, that's hard to get out of. Wellens also called for two new government programs to advance equity, guaranteed basic incomes and children's savings accounts, also known as baby bonds. Both have been tested already in small pilot projects around the country and are getting a look from elected leaders in our area. For instance, Maryland's governor-elect, Wes Moore, has proposed children's savings accounts as a prominent feature of his agenda. There are strategies that we implored during the course of the pandemic that we knew would uh, immediately change the trajectory of whether someone was able to weather the storm or not, right? So there was a lot of investment in, uh, in cash transfers through, you know, we, the, the universal term is guaranteed basic income. And a lot of us did it as pilots because we knew that people needed money in their hands right now. There wasn't enough, I would say, counseling services or other services that could top um, an immediate infusion of cash so that people can decide whether they needed to pay the rent, get your car repaired, or pay the cost of your, you know, for your prescriptions. Cash transfers uh, are one important strategies that philanthropy right now um, it, are making big bets on. The other big bet we're, we're looking into is our children's savings accounts. So a key element of our strategy, because we've seen the data 
uh, that one says in, you know, in a generation, it, it has the potential to, to close a, a racial wealth gaps by about 28%. But, and it also shows that when um, you invest in children's savings accounts, children with trust assigned to them perform better in school uh, than those who, who do not. And they're four or five times more likely to attend college uh, than kids who don't have an educational investment um, that's assigned to them. So we're, we're, we're putting a lot of bets right now on modeling what, um, what children's savings accounts could look like with the hope, with the expectation that in, um, you know, DC already has a, a, a baby bonds initiative, but we're looking at how we can motivate our peers in, in, in Maryland and in Virginia to consider um, the same options, particularly for low-income families and kids. Like the Council of Governments and many other institutions, Welland's Community Foundation is using local geography to target its efforts. It's focusing its work on neighborhoods with lower incomes and high minority populations, also identified by COG as equity emphasis areas. For instance, the foundation is aiming its grants for workforce development at about 20 specific neighborhoods across the region that are most in need. Yeah, I'm pretty excited that we had a chance through the course of our strategic planning to really spend time looking at how can we make our philanthropy have the biggest impact? Uh, how can we how can we even influence our fund holders to direct their philanthropy in a way that yields the biggest impact? And for us, it was really uh, landing on a, a neighborhood strategy. Like we've identified, again, using the equity emphasis mapping tool, using data that we were able to, um, to pull through a partnership with Brookings Institution to, uh, to look at you know, key indicators like uh, life expectancy, income, home ownership rates, overlay those factors with uh, you know, where density around communities of color, Black, Latinx, other, and really get clear on the areas, the neighborhoods, the zip codes in our um, in our region that should require our greatest attention and uh, philanthropic investment and coordination. And so the COG tool was incredibly helpful in, uh, in getting us to what those key neighborhoods and areas are. In conclusion, I share some of my own thoughts. At the local level, public and private institutions are committing themselves to lift poor, historically disadvantaged communities, which in the Washington area have high minority populations. The goal is to end the economic inequities at the root of so many of our social problems. Each sector has a role to play. Government must provide mass transit and other infrastructure to overcome historical isolation and improve job opportunities. It needs to foster livable, walkable, mixed-use communities in areas now filled with strip malls and highways. Business must be sure that financing and other support are available to low-income populations for home purchases and business startups. Philanthropy can target its efforts at poorer neighborhoods and advocate for policy changes such as adjusting benefit cutoffs. All sectors need to guarantee that people can get workforce training and other aid to acquire skills that lead to better jobs. They all can be sure that minority businesses are getting their fair share of contracts and that marginalized populations don't get overlooked but if anything, get extra attention when it comes to everything from pandemic relief to locating a domestic violence shelter. Ultimately, to really move the needle on inequity, it will probably be necessary to institute ambitious, 
and frankly expensive social programs such as guaranteed basic income or children's savings accounts. We aren't there yet, but there are signs that we're on the way. All in all, this is a noble, virtuous effort that deserves all of our support. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We welcome your feedback. Please email comments to thinkregionally, one word, at mwcog.org. This podcast is produced by Janelle Partman and Lindsay Martin. Look for our next episode next month on fighting homelessness, just in time for winter weather. This is your host, Robert McCartney, urging everyone to think regionally.